Our first reading comes from Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The second reading is from Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about 11 kilometers from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and who are chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said unto each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's pray together. Father, grant to us to live further and deeper into the story of your gospel. May we see and to the unfolding of your son's kingdom here on earth, even in this city of Toronto. And may we bear witness to it in our lives by the power of your spirit. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we've been exploring how to foster stillness as a means, as a means to experience and encounter God in our lives as we've heard last week from James, he encouraged us to step into the silence, to be attentive to God's whispering to us, the changeless love of, of Christ, to hush our fears, to subdue the clamor all around us and even the nagging worries up in our heads. Because even in the silence, even in the darkness of our suffering, 
Whether we believe it or not, God, God is fully present there. Well, today we'll be exploring another aspect of being still as a Christian discipline, and that's the aspect of inhabiting, inhabiting the story of Scripture. That is to step in and live into the grand narrative of God's redeeming love for the world as told, perfectly told, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is a necessary aspect, without which instilling quietness in ourselves ceases to be a Christian endeavor. Because this discipline of quieting ourselves is not an exclusively Christian practice. It's not even exclusively a religious practice. You don't have to be religious or spiritual to benefit from decluttering our own lives, from disconnecting and retreating into nature, to hit the reset button. I mean, as much as quieting ourselves is a healthy thing to do, without the story of the Bible, it becomes this futile attempt to sandbag our lives from the hurricane blast of demands and disappointments and devastation that will surely come crashing into our lives, then we would only have learned to cope, to never thrive, only to survive, only to glaze our wounds with so much therapy and never touch the bottom and the source of our grief. Now, Michael Cosper, pastor and writer of modern arts and media, he wrote that how we now in these late modern times have understood ourselves and our place in the world is that we hear and tell stories. We hear and tell stories, not much unlike people in pre-modern times. Hosper attributes this ancient propensity for stories to the distant echoing of the past, our rehearsing and rehashing the origins of our humanity that follows this universal template, this universal plotline that went something like this. This picture-perfect opening scene and then the unraveling of paradise, our descent, our spiraling down into calamity, then the struggle and longing in between, hoping for something. And then finally imagining this emergence into this blissful ever after. Now throughout history, this is how we have made sense of ourselves in our place in this world, by the hearing the telling and retelling and the passing along of stories, seeing ourselves as characters embedded into the various plot lines of the ages. Now, the English writer and literary critic G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book, Orthodoxy, this is what he said, I had always believed that the world involved magic. Now, I thought that perhaps it involved a magician, that this world of ours has some purpose. And if there's a purpose, there is a person. I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. In these last 60 years or so, we've been going through as a society this postmodern experiment to cast Suspicion and topple down these age-old storylines, these traditional institutional narratives. Now, one such narrative include the Judeo-Christian story of creation. That is, nature was made and endowed by God with law and order and discoverability. And that humanity was seared with the hot, immortal brand of God's divine image. 
And while we as the people have not so much grown weary and suspicious of stories per se, we have questioned those who would and could tell them. That is the storytellers, the narrators of our society, those who would uphold certain traditions or narratives, including the church as an institution, those who sit in power, who hold the microphone, who hold the bullhorn, those who have the script on hand. We have, as a society, become generally suspicious of those kinds of storytellers. And so instead, we've turned into ourselves, to the individual, to the person, to tell our own stories, to speak our own truths, to mark our own journeys. We've turned away from the objects and monoliths out there instead turned into ourselves, the ultimate subject. We've become our own personal plot lines. I mean, as much as our cultural turn gave voice, gave voice to those who had no voice in the past, to those who could not speak for themselves. That's a good thing. But we have so quickly underestimated and devalued these age-old stories and narratives and traditions upon which Western democracy and our, and our liberal secular values were founded. Now, whether we are aware of it or not, stories and narratives from the cosmic level to the personal level, whether it's out there around us, or even inside us, these stories, they powerfully push and pull us as individuals and as a civilization. It's like the push and pull of the ocean versus the rudders of a ship. The tidal waves, the undercurrents that lift and carry us, while we steer our rudders, we heave and haul against these forces as individuals. So what are these storylines and narratives that are out there, that are at play these days? What are these tidal waves and undercurrents that lift and carry us in the Western world? There's the doom and gloom of climate collapse, the tearing of the fabric of civil society on the seams of race, sexuality, gender, and wealth. There's the rupturing of Western democracy, the circus of public discourse and social media, there's a pandemic, QAnon, and conspiracy theories. But much closer to the church, there's divisions yet in the Anglican church and the decline of Christianity in our Western culture. On and on we go. We've, we've heard it all. And one or more of these things have us all freaking out. But with all of these over and against us, we have our own personal rudders to steer. And sometimes our own ships, our own lives, are carried into places that we don't want to go. There's stage four cancer, the breakdown of marriage, sexual abuse, loss of a child. You lost someone to a freak accident, losing your job or your business. You still feel alone and unloved, on and on, and we're not sure if we will ever land to shore. Now, in our gospel reading, we read about these two followers of Jesus as they were walking away. They were walking away from the institutional center of their culture and religion, away from Jerusalem and the temple. And they were shocked. They were so betrayed by their own religious leaders. 
their chief priests who had just crushed their hopes and dreams in Jesus. These were the leaders who wielded their power and colluded with Rome just to preserve and maintain their hegemony. It was a shocking plot twist to these two followers' storyline. Their storyline was supposed to be, oh, Messiah King Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's going to ascend the throne of David and destroy the Roman Empire. and He'll usher in the eternal kingdom of heaven into Israel. But this was not supposed to be the way the script goes. It's not how it's supposed to be. So they thought. And so as the two were walking away from Jerusalem, away from this place, this center, this source of their grief and contempt, the resurrected Jesus runs up to them. As if it were to interrupt in midway in their journey, he runs up beside them and the two did not recognize him. They were kept from seeing them. Then as usual, in his typical Jesus way, Jesus asks them this casual but very pointed question in verse 15. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? What's this conversation? That question got them to stop. Verse 15, they stood still and it says they looked sad. Now let me pause here. Luke, the writer of this gospel, included this seemingly trivial detail, but for a purpose. There's a purpose to this. Jesus stopped his two friends to get them to consider what storyline, what stories they were telling each other. To consider why it is that they're walking away from Jerusalem. So this is the question that Jesus posed for them. What's this journey away from Jerusalem all about? What are you walking away from? And where are you walking towards? What is the story you're telling each other? And I believe Jesus still does that to us, for us, even now, even right now. As we're walking away, perhaps, journeying far from this epicenter of our hurt, from the source of our loss, these centers of our disappointments, away from where we thought our hopes and dreams and promises were, and only to be disappointed to be betrayed by them. That's not how the script's supposed to go, we say. And then Jesus runs up out of nowhere on our journey away. He runs up beside us. He gets us to stop, to be still for a while. Be still, to consider. And he asks you and me, what is this conversation? What is this sighing, this groaning, this ranting and raving? that we are holding in ourselves and even to each other, and even in social media. What is this all about? And he listens to us. Right now, he is beside you, he is with you, he's listening to you, even without words, walking with you. Even as you walk away from that place of disappointment, of hurt, of tragedy, of death, of loss. Then the journey began to change for these two followers. In verse 18, Luke tells us how the two disciples responded to Jesus on that question. They thought this guy that just ran up to them had been living under a rock. So they rehashed everything to him that what had happened two nights ago, they were honest. They were brutally honest. They were quite vulnerable about their own feelings and shared openly how devastated they truly were. It was therapeutic for them. It was good for them to have shared that. 
And then here is the first turn of the story. In verses 25 to 27, Jesus unveils this bigger plot twist in, in their own storyline. That is, there's this bigger overarching narrative that had already been at play, that had already been at play all throughout their own religious texts since the beginning. From the books of Moses all the way to the prophets, the trajectory of Jewish scripture pointed and looked forward to the advent, the, the real suffering and death of the Messiah and his glory and rising in glory. That is for these two followers of Jesus. Jesus was telling them that devastating Friday evening that you thought was the end of the story. That's not the end of your story. For us today, these dystopian, these alarmist endings that we're hearing from all these popular narratives on social media, that's not the end of the world. That's not the end of our world. That's not the end of our story. Your loss, the death of a loved one, the hurt, the outrage and grief that you have, that's not the end of your story. Life often sounds like the ones narrating the story are death, Disease, division, the devil, those who are sitting in power are not held to account. And as loudly as they shriek and shout at everything and at everyone, they don't have the last word. They don't have the final word. Jesus does. Jesus has the last word. He holds the script in his hand. He is the grand narrator of life. He is literally Right now, storytelling all of time and space into existence. And time and space are ever unfolding and blossoming to the light of the dawn of an eternal world, of the dead risen from life, of sickness healed, of wrongs righted, lies debunked, evil punished, a crooked set in place, of death swallowed up by life, paradise regained for the great reunion of all that was lost. That's the story. But there's more. There's more to that story. See, back in our gospel reading, as the three of them journeyed, that journey changed for them as they journeyed still away from Jerusalem to the end of the day. These two disciples urged Jesus, who is this man? We, we want for you to stay at night. The, the night is coming at last for a meal. It was the sensible and generous thing to do because it was dangerous to be out at night. And then in verse 30, this is the second turn, the second plot twist. Jesus, who was supposed to be a guest in their home, he ended up hosting the meal inside the home of these disciples. It says, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Jesus ended up becoming the host. And it was, it was only when that bread was blessed was broken and then given to them, did these two followers finally recognize it was Jesus all along. Their eyes were open to the presence of Christ. The story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, is retold by the blessing and the breaking and the giving of the bread. The Apostle Paul wrote that as much as we celebrate the Eucharist, we proclaim the death of Christ. That is, we hear we retell, we hold in our hands, and we pass it along literally the gospel story of God's redemption in Jesus. And that's exactly what the two disciples ended up doing. 
In verse 32, they began to have a different conversation with each other, even after they had just walked away from Jerusalem. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Jewish scriptures? Something in them had just lit up. Their hearts were on fire. And so there was nothing else to do, but they rose that same hour and returned returned to Jerusalem. That same hour, they returned, walked back to Jerusalem, more than 11 kilometers away at nightfall, on foot, risking their own safety on the road. These two disciples had just walked away from Jerusalem, that same place of shattered hopes and dreams that had deflated them, that same center of corrupt power and religious institutional injustice, that had just defeated them. And they ran back. These same people got up and ran back to Jerusalem into the night, into the darkness, with their hearts aflame with resurrection hope. See, this power of the story of Scripture, this power of the gospel retold in the blessed, broken, and given bread, they had these two's eyes opened to the presence of Christ. The power of the gospel heard and held in their hands in the bread, got their hearts skipping, beaming, burning, as they plunged headlong into the night, into the darkness, into Jerusalem with good news to proclaim. This is the same power of the gospel that so gripped Western civilization in the past. It had inspired the social political outcry for the emancipation of slaves in the abolitionist movements throughout Western Europe and Americas. It had inspired the world to unite and mobilize and give up their lives against the threat of fascism and the hateful crimes against humanity in the Second World War, for which today and this week that we are commemorating. It had inspired the rhetoric and the, the rationale and the nonviolent stance of the civil rights movement in America in the 50s and 60s, and on and on, the movement and the story of the gospel, shaping and heaving against the world to shape it and change it for the kingdom of God. These are but the same attempts by those inspired by the story of Scripture to turn back around, to stop from walking away, but to turn back around, to walk back into these places of corruption, these centers of injustice, to these dominions of evil and demonic influence, to confront the night and the darkness with hearts aflame, with good news to proclaim. And you and I, you and me are beckoned, are invited to do the same. Whether we're still walking away, midway, unsure that we want to walk back into those places of hurt, into those places of darkness. We don't want to go back there. But no matter what our storylines are, we don't know how it will unfold. Jesus is always beside us. He's walking with us, reminding us about the story of the gospel. That is that the narrative arc of your life and mine, and the life of this world, and all of history is bending towards the undoing of the devastation of sin, the silencing of Satan, and the plundering of the gates of death. That's the narrative arc. So what are we to do then? 
well, what are we going to do? As Christians, we keep reading the Bible. Keep reading the Bible. Make time to read and study it. Be immersed in it. Be absorbed by it like a sponge. And it's a much better experiencing doing all of that with others. Do it with your friends, with your church friends, with your family and with your children. The Bible is the only weapon that heals and also wages war against the darkness of this world. We've, it's been given to us by the Spirit, entrusted to us to wield it, to wield it responsibly. We sharpen it, and as we do so, we are sharpened by it as well. I encourage us to read the Bible from cover to cover. Finish reading it at least once. It sounds daunting and ambitious, but it's well worth it. And of course, take your time with it because there will be parts of it that will feel like a slog. It is an ancient cultural literature from another world. So it's hard to understand sometimes some parts of it, but we study it. There's a discipline behind it. And like any kind of exercise, the more you do it, the better you'll become and the better you'll also feel about it. Not because we want to just do a religious thing. It's because we have nothing else to know about God and Jesus Christ except through the encounter of Holy Scripture by the power of the Spirit. We encounter the living God in the pages, in the words. The world needs that. We need that. I also highly recommend looking into YouTube about the Bible Project movement. Subscribe to their YouTube channel. The Bible Project does these very solid and tasteful videos about the basic level to the bigger concept and word studies on Scripture. They're so beautifully animated, and the narration is down-to-earth and relatable for our times. Look into the Bible Project. Be still and know that Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. He is alive reigning supreme, seated at the right hand of God. And he is the one narrating, storytelling all of time and space into existence. So let's dive in. Let's dive in head first, even as the tidal waves and the undercurrents, they push and pull us wherever and with our rudders tired and creaky. It is Jesus who will bring all of our stories to a close. He is tying and wrapping everything up into the story of his gospel. We don't know how or when and what's ahead of us. And whether we are walking away from Jerusalem or we are turning around and heading straight into it, Jesus is with us. He's beside us. He's listening to us. And he will see to the end of this never-ending story of the gospel. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.